0: listening to The Booking Club with Jack Aldane, the podcast that takes you to the favourite dining places of today's leading authors. On this 41st and final episode of 2021, I'm speaking to philosopher and author David Edmonds live at his favourite restaurant about his new book, The Murder of Professor Schlipp, The Rise and Fall of the Vienna Circle. Okay, good afternoon everyone. It's wonderful to see you all coming from far and wide to paradise in Hampstead for this, the second Booking Club live event. I'm the host and producer of the Booking Club, Jack Aldane, and I'm delighted to be joined by Mr. David Edmonds, philosopher, former feature maker for BBC Radio, and author of books that include Russo's Dog, Two Great Thinkers at War in the Age of Enlightenment, a book that was recommended to me as a teen during my A level in philosophy, Wittgenstein's Poker. <laughs> Sorry about that. Dude. Uh, the story of a ten-minute argument between two great philosophers. Cast Wars, a philosophy of discrimination, and more recently, Undercover Robot. My first year as a human. I think that's a book aimed at uh, children about nine years old. Been one and, sixth of my age. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And the book we're going to be talking about this afternoon, The Murder of Professor Schlick, the rise and fall of the Vienna Circle. David. Absolute pleasure to have you here. This is your favourite restaurant, and I believe on the menu they even have a dish named after you. So could you tell us a little bit about the backstory to this? How on earth did you manage to persuade them to put your name to an item on their delectable menu? It's the Edmunds
1: Biryani. I can recommend it very strongly. I guess I've been coming here since about 1995, so what's that, over 25 years, and... In the first 15 years until the kids arrived and we moved a bit further out of town, I was coming here at probably once a week or twice a week. Uh, so, you know, if I could take back all the money I've spent in the paradise, I could probably buy a small island in the Caribbean. <laughs> Although it would probably sink with global warming. So I'm better off spending it. <laughs>
0: You invested curry. in the right sort of paradise. I did. I did. The exactly. more sustainable, long-lasting. <laughs> exactly, <way. laughs>
1: Parad- paradise. Paradise here in in North London. As you can see, it's it's a lovely little restaurant. It's got a beautiful location on the corner of the Heath. That's right. Fantastic food. It's really very reasonably priced. Um, I'm not the only one with a dish named after me. So there's the Edmunds biryani. My friend Craigo Matthew Craigo, who is an academic. Has the Crago Merg named after him. I'm a vegetarian, so I've never tried the Crago Merg, but it, we have a sort of competition about which sells more, the Edmunds Biryani or the Crago Merg. And so at every opportunity, I try and denigrate the Crago Merg. But I gather it's very good, but, but, but please don't purchase. Don't buy the Crago Merg. Really, <laughs>
0: Along with the Edmunds Biryani, there is also the Arctic Merg that you'll see there. That was named after the Arctic monkeys, who were also big fans of paradise. I believe this is also the favorite Indian restaurant of one Harry Styles. So, just a pantheon of the great and good. Let's start with the basics then. This is a work of philosophy, history, and it's also an introduction to a school of thought in philosophy, developed over the 1920s and into the mid to late 30s, logical positivism, which we'll get into shortly. We know that history has many, many examples of ideas whose founders or those that coined them got into politically hot water as a result. But I think what's quite unique about this particular story is the way in which a philosophy with seemingly quite benign premises managed to pose such a visceral threat to what would eventually become Nazi Germany and the connections and causes and effects of that contain a lot of mystery and accident and uh, and drama. So if you could just start off by introducing us to the philosophical concepts that are inevitably going to come up in this, take us to ground zero of logical positivism.
1: Well the logical positivists or the logical empiricists as they're sometimes called were a group of thinkers in the 1920s, 1930s in Vienna. They were almost all trained in science and mathematics. They all had technical backgrounds. And they were fascinated by the new science of Einstein and Heisenberg, some of which seemed to make no intuitive sense at all. And they were interested in how to make sense of this new science and what philosophy could do to contribute to the science. And to cut to the quick, they come up with this very radical and, as we now think, deeply flawed philosophy, the philosophy of logical empiricism, which claimed that for a sentence a proposition to have meaning, it had to fulfil one of two criteria. Either it had to be testable, so for example, a claim like the Edmunds biryani contains aubergine, you know, something you could go and look at and probe and test and put under a magnifying glass, or it had to be true by the definition of the terms. So an example of that would be something like a triangle has three sides, or all bachelors are unmarried men. It's true by the definition of the terms. You cannot be a bachelor if you're married.
0: What we sometimes call tautologies, which editors look out for, where you basically say the same thing twice without realising it.
1: Yes, in a way you're saying nothing, because the two terms are synonymous. So their claim was that if a proposition didn't fulfil one of those two criteria, if it was neither testable nor true by definition, then it was literally meaningless. So what does that mean? That means that statements about religion, lots of theological statements about God, lots of statements about ethics, for example, murder is wrong, or you should always keep your promises, statements about aesthetics, Beethoven is a greater musician, Lady Gaga those kinds of claims which look like they have content are literally meaningless why are they meaningless? they're meaningless because they don't fulfill one of those two criteria and so it dismisses as gibberish vast swathes of things which we traditionally think have got meaning
0: if your brains are starting to hurt at this point, rest assured This certainly isn't the first time that you've written an historical account of the lives of philosophers and the evolution of their ideas. Uh, That said, it would be good to know what got you interested in the historical context of the Vienna Circle, enough that you felt that there was a story to be written about it which hadn't been told before, and was a story you felt ought to be told.
1: Well, I was initially drawn to it for for two reasons. The first was that I'd written this book, which you kindly mentioned, called Wittgenstein's Poker. And Wittgenstein's Poker was about a 10-minute row between two of the great philosophers of the 20th century, Karl Popper and Ludwig Wittgenstein. And one, if you believe the accounts, threatened another, according to some accounts, not very believable, with a red-hot poker in 1946 in Cambridge on October the 25th. And the row lasted only 10 minutes, but it was very important to Karl Popper, and he wrote about it in his intellectual biography. And we began to believe that one of the reasons that the dispute was so fierce was because of their backgrounds. They were both raised, born and raised in Vienna, but they came from very different backgrounds. Wittgenstein was one of, if not the richest person in Europe, came from fabulous wealth, unbelievably wealthy family. His father had been the moving force in the Austrian Industrial Revolution. Pretty much controlled the whole steel industry, didn't he, of yeah. the empire? Yeah, very, very powerful figure, um, a, a kind of Rockefeller or Carnegie figure. And Popper was from a middle-class family, but they'd lost all their wealth in the hyperinflation in Austria in, in the early 1920s. So we came to believe that Vienna contained a bit of the puzzle to, to explain why this row was so fierce. And that drew us to the Vienna Circle, which this new book is about. So that was one reason. And then I've always, there's a personal reason as well, I've always been just fascinated by the Vienna of the 1920s and 1930s well post uh, millennium Vienna fantasy club Vienna it was just the most extraordinary place with extraordinary architects and artists and philosophers and obviously psychoanalysis is born there mm-hmm. zionism is born in vienna there's just an amazing amount going on and i have a personal link in that my mother is half Viennese. My grandmother was born in Vienna and went to the University of Vienna roughly at the same time as members of the Vienna circle. So I grew up with a few kind of old Viennese relatives. Oh, interesting. I don't think you mentioned that in the book, do you? I don't think I mentioned the, the fact that we were, we were surrounded by old relatives with um, funny German accents. But I feel very at home,
0: weirdly, in, in Vienna of that time. I happen to have an uncle who lives in Vienna and and it is a wonderful city. I recommend that anyone goes there just for the Sasha Tort. Terrible curry, terrible curry. (laughs) But but, I mean I think it is a different
1: place now. Um, It was much more multicultural than it is now and intellectually more vibrant.
0: We can't really talk about the Vienna Circle without talking about some of its members, some of the personalities that it attracted. I mean, you mentioned there Ludwig Wittgenstein. And when you read about some of these personalities, you appreciate that many of them, as you alluded to, grew up in a variety of difficult, sometimes grim circumstances, whether they were of a personal or economic nature. You know, Ludwig Wittgenstein grew up in enormous wealth. But, of course, he didn't stop three of his brothers committing suicide. They had an incredibly, this father you mentioned, incredibly domineering presence in the household. And I do wonder to what extent logical positivism might have provided some of its proponents on at least a subconscious level, and many of them did actually seek out psychoanalysis when psychoanalysis was all the rage, a way of controlling painful reality through language, bearing in mind that many of them were still reeling from the after effects of the First World War. That's interesting. I hadn't drawn a
1: connection between That aspect, I mean, they had different sorts of backgrounds. As you mentioned, Wittgenstein had a very wealthy background, but extremely troubled, and he was constantly himself on the verge of suicide. Um, For me, it, it certainly, when I was young, had a comforting element to it in that I was a sort of militant atheist, aged 18, 19, when I first came across the person who translates logical positivism for the Anglo-American world, who's a philosopher called Freddie Ayer. And he visits Vienna in the 1930s, and he brings back the ideas of logical positivism to Britain. And he writes this extraordinary book when he's only 26, I believe. And it's a very polemical book. And it was very appealing for me as a youngster to not have to worry about some of these deep problems that do trouble most people about you know whether there's a god and so on and and and, and the status of morality whether whether morality really is objective or whether it's just relative whether what i believe in north london is the same as what people believe in in North Lagos or whether our ethics is necessarily relative, those sorts of questions, and it provides a very simple clear answer whether it had that kind of motivation for the Vienna Circle, I don't know, I mean the principal motivation was to counter metaphysicians and one reason they wanted to counter metaphysicians, and maybe we'll get onto this is that the far right had metaphysics at their core. So central to the fascists, and fascists in Austria came in two varieties. There was the homegrown variety, who were the Austro-fascists, who were opposed to the German variety, the Nazis. And we, you know we know who won out eventually. But central to both those movements is metaphysics. And some of the metaphysical ideas... At the core of fascism are things like the people, the folk, are something over and above the individuals. And this was one of the things that the logical positivists opposed, the idea that there was a, a folk, a people. Um, because that couldn't be verified. Exactly that. Exactly what? How do you what do you mean? What is it? How do you go about proving that there's a folk over and above the set of individuals that make it? There's also a kind of romantic attachment to the, to the earth as well, which the logical positivists were opposed to. Um, their principal enemy... I mean, if you ask modern philosophers who is the greatest philosopher of the 20th century, almost unanimously they will say Wittgenstein. Maybe not unanimously, but Wittgenstein comes out top. Okay, he's the top dog. He's the greatest philosopher of the 20th century. Another great thinker who much more divides people is Heidegger. And Heidegger and Wittgenstein were around at roughly the same time. And the Vienna Circle loathed Heidegger. And Heidegger was a metaphysician. And he's really their principal enemy that they're trying to attack.
0: You should be thankful that we're not talking about the philosophy of Heidegger today. He is absolutely impossible to read.
1: I mean, Wittgenstein is very difficult to read if you read him on your own. But if you read him with secondary texts, you can, I think, understand what he's trying to say.
0: I'm going to read an extract of the book now to tee up this next and perhaps most important question in terms of how the philosophy became so political. You write in uh, one of the first chapters of the book, quote, "...the theory of relativity, in theory, was politically neutral. It was, after all, a depiction of how the physical world operated, and there was nothing inherently socialist or liberal or conservative about that. In practice, however..." The new physics aroused intense hostility, which rapidly became politicized. Einstein himself had astutely foreseen the danger. In 1922, he said, If my theory of relativity is proven successful, Germany will claim me as a German, and France will declare that I am a citizen of the world. Should my theory prove untrue, France will say that I am a German, and Germany will declare that I am a Jew. Which is interesting, because of course,
1: Einstein was verified that was the whole point about Einsteinian physics that it threw up predictions, which is why it was embraced by the logical positivists, and many of them knew Einstein were very familiar with Einstein, one of the logical positivists, Philip Frank was his first biographer, Slick was the founder of the of the Vienna Circle. Was somebody who translated Einstein for the rest of the world and tried to make sense of it philosophically. So several of them knew Einstein. Einstein was shown to be right. There, um, he made predictions before they were tested, and his predictions turned out to be correct. And yet, nonetheless, he was denounced as a a Jew by the Nazis, and Einsteinian physics was denounced as. Jewish physics, sociologically, there are two things to be said about the Vienna circle. One is that the majority of them were of the left, with the exception of Moritz Slick, the uh, eponymous star of the book who is murdered, who was very uncomfortable with politics and was a small c conservative. Almost all of them were of the left, as most of the intelligentsia were in Vienna, the other thing, of course, which is true of many of the intellectuals in Vienna at the time, more than half of them were Jewish. So when the fascists come to power in 1934, they have to eventually flee. And then by the time of the Anschluss in 1938, they
0: will, they will have to leave Austria. And so to put simply then, how did the Vienna Circle become politicised? Because there were elements of the circle that very much saw logical positivism as fertile ground for a new type of politics. One character that gets mentioned quite a lot in the book, Otto Neurath, believed that it could be an instrument of technocratic socialism. In other words, stripped of metaphysics, if we could talk about the world in terms of the bare physical reality, we could create a way of conceptualizing a better society based on the fundamentals of what people need to survive what sort of houses they would need, none of which would have to come with any sort of metaphysical sprinkling.
1: Yes. So in 1929, Moritz Slick is offered a job elsewhere, and he decides to turn it down. And to thank him, the rest of the circle write a manifesto about what the Vienna Circle stand for. And they present it to Moritz Slick. And he's extremely annoyed about it, because he's the one member of the circle who wants to keep politics out of the circle and he's very afraid about of what is going to happen he's absolutely right that if you get too political then you're going to alienate a powerful wing of Austrian politics which is exactly what happens the majority of them as I mentioned were left-wing Otto Neurath is an amazing man um, who should be much better known Uh, many of the signposts that you see around Britain and around the world, where images are used to signify something like a grown-up and a child crossing a road or whatever, are inspired by Otto Neurath, who comes up with a way of translating ideas into images, because so many members of the working class, particularly in Austria, were illiterate, and he wanted to politicise them. He couldn't do it with words, so he did it with images, so he creates a museum and he presents information which is necessarily political to the Viennese working classes, and it's information about how many people are unemployed, rates of infant mortality and so on, not necessarily information that everybody wants out there. So it's necessarily political information. And he's a a weird combination of Marxist, so he believes that society is evolving which is a kind of odd thing for a logical positivist to, to claim because it's very difficult to test that kind of claim but he's also a utilitarian so he thinks that even though you can't put a value on things you can't say this is better than that what you can say is this makes people happier than that so you can test levels of well-being or you can test wealth for example. So as you say, he, he has a very technocratic way of addressing politics. What can we do to maximise the number of houses so that few, the fewest possible people are living on the streets? What can we do to improve the well-being of the worst off and so on and so forth in a very technocratic, utilitarian way, which obviously was also inspired by socialist ideals. Yet another reason why why the right was so, if not afraid of them, they were clearly not natural bedfellows of the right.
0: Let's go back to Professor Schlick, because as the convener of the circle, who did not want logical positivism to become politicised, the sad irony, of course, is that it was him who was punished in the end.
1: So he is shot in 1936 by an ex-student called Nelbuk, Nilbook is a schizophrenic, believes that Slick is having an affair with a young female student who he himself may have had a relationship with, and so it's an act of envy and revenge. But after he's shot, what's so interesting about the murder is how it's interpreted. And some of the papers welcome the murder as a political act, as an act against the evils of logical positivism, and they welcome it. Nelbuk is tried, and they can't but find him guilty, because he's there almost literally with a smoking gun over the body. I think the gun is not smoking, but the, the, uh, the gun is there, and somebody hears him shout, there you bastard, there you have it, or something like that. So He was obviously guilty, but once the war starts, he's allowed quietly to leave, and he he lives the rest of his life in in peace and quiet, um, despite having murdered one of the great figures of Austrian philosophy.
0: Of course, he got off lightly because he was a good German who had good reasons to do what he did. That's
1: right. He was inspired not by envy or jealousy, but by patriotism and by ideology. And so, yes, he, he, he served very little of his sentence.
0: The members of the circle, many of them disbanded to the United States, many of them to Britain, around Europe as well, wherever they could, and many of them died in later life. Otto Neurad, with his head down on the dinner table, having read Goethe Wittgenstein II from pancreatic cancer, in a way it all just sort of fell apart quite quietly and, and disparately, didn't it? So in some ways it does, because
1: they scatter and they're never able to recreate the atmosphere of Vienna where they used to meet every week in the university and then they would meet in the coffee bars, the famous coffee bars of Vienna. So they can never reproduce that because they're now in different parts of the world. So Popper goes eventually. to New Zealand before he comes to the UK. Mostly they come to either America or the UK. We end up with a few of them. Wittgenstein has taken British nationality before the war, and Karl Popper comes here, and then Otto Neurath dies here. We, there's a woman called Rose Rand who comes here. Friedrich Weissmann, a great figure, goes to Oxford and is bullied by, by Wittgenstein and has a rather miserable existence. And in America, they're scattered all around the U.S universities. So in some ways, yeah, it's a sad end. In other ways, analytic Anglo-American philosophy. Has been heavily influenced by the circle. It's difficult to imagine philosophy in America or the UK now without the Vienna circle. There are other figures, of course, like Bertrand Russell and Frege, who are very influential. But this drive towards conceptual analysis, analyzing what we mean by things, that's an important influence from, from the circle. And the sense that, you know, this kind of anti bullshit, approach of Anglo-American philosophy, which I very much embrace. And what do you mean? What are you trying to say? That's very much in the spirit of the circle. So in some ways it's nowhere, but in other ways it's everywhere in the philosophical world. And, yeah, I think we don't realise it, people doing philosophy in Britain in the 21st century and America in the 21st century, but we've absorbed some of the messages of the Vienna Circle.
0: So then in terms of its legacy, you've alluded to it there, but of course there's an awful lot of debate at the moment about whether or not we are increasingly living under a technocratic science or a scientific technocracy. Even with the Brexit debate, you know, the role of metaphysical concepts in our public discourse. I did see somebody tweet the other day pictures of bare supermarket shelves. Well, I guess it's sovereignty for dinner tonight. (laughs) Great example, right? How do you see the relevance of what you've written in this book to today?
1: We've got used to, thanks to Donald Trump, this idea of fake news. And the sense that propositions ought to be testable is, I think, a very healthy one and a helpful one. The idea that people ought not to be able to get away with talking BS when it's not grounded in anything empirical, I think is we should bear that lesson in mind. I mentioned right at the beginning that what the Vienna Circle was interested in was distinguishing sense from nonsense. What kind of propositions made sense and what made no sense? And the area that made no sense were metaphysical claims and claims about aesthetics and aesthetics and so on. There was another question that they were very interested in, which is relevant for today, which Karl Popper draws their attention to, but it's a different, slight, slightly different demarcation. There's one is between sense and nonsense. Another distinguishing demarcation is between science and non-science. What it is that, what is it that makes something a scientific proposition? And what is it that makes something non-scientific? And obviously that's relevant to debates about vaccines. Uh, you know, there are all sorts of claims made. By all sorts of people, you may read about uh, people writing up the stars. You know, you're Virgo, and so you're bound to have this kind of accident this week, or whatever. Um, or, or you're going to meet somebody, the, the person of your dreams, next month because you're an Aries. Uh, I mean, they sort of purport to be science, but in some, they don't. They're clearly not scientific. So, what is it that distinguishes science and non-science? That turns out to be. Well, obviously, it's a very important, fascinating question, but a very difficult question to answer. Psychoanalysis is an interesting one here. Where do we fit psychoanalysis in? You mentioned that many of them had psychoanalysis, as everybody did. If you you went to Vienna, you know, it's like... If you went to London, you'd go and see the Tower of London. If you went to Vienna, you'd go and get psychoanalysis. Like getting
0: the T-shirt, wasn't it? Exactly. Yeah. It, was, it was obviously a sensible thing to Laying do. Laying down on Freud's couch. Yeah, yeah. I've, what? Been to, I've been to his old office in Vienna. I'm sure you have too. Um, I expected to be sort of enchanted by it. It's actually quite a dirty little hovel now, isn't it? His well, old hat, his yeah. cane, and yeah.
1: Well, the, the, <laughs> obviously, some of it came over to London, and you can go and see some of the furniture about 100 yards. The other reason you should come to the Cary Paradise is you can then combine it with Freud's museum, which is just mm. round the corner from here. He came here. He would have come to the Cary Paradise if it existed in 1939. But where psychoanalysis fits into this world is interesting. Is it a science? Isn't it, is it not a science? Freud obviously thought it was a science. But is it testable? Can, does it make claims that are testable? So to get back to its relevance... I mean, people make all sorts of claims about the vaccine and Brexit. And you want to say, well, I want your claim to be testable. I want to know what the test is. I want to know what would falsify it, what would show your claim to be incorrect. Because if you just make a claim that can't be disproved... In what sense is that science? And many of the disputes we have these days, there's nothing you can do to persuade people one way or the other, because they have such they're so fixed in their position that you can show them contrary evidence and they just absorb that evidence in their in their worldview. So if they're if they're pro-Brexit and you say, look at those empty shelves, they'll say, Well, that's because of X, or that's because of something else. It's not got nothing to do with Brexit. Or in three years' time, the f- shells will be fuller than they've ever been. So th- there's a way in which you can't argue with people about some of these things. And you want to say, no, if you want to make a claim, I want to know what the criteria are for judging it. And I think that's a, that is a good test to hold
0: these debates up to. So I'd like to open it up to questions from the audience. Our first asker. Hi. Uh, thanks very much um, for speaking uh, to us. It's kind of a more general question. Obviously, you, you write books about these really exciting intellectual climates you know, that existed about 100 years ago or so. Is it just because of the lens of history that makes them seem exciting and glamorous. Um, and, and actually, there's there's things happening around us now in philosophy departments that will seem equally exciting in a hundred years. Or, or is it genuinely a more sort of exciting time in in the world of philosophy a hundred years ago than it is than it is now?
1: Oh, that's an interesting question. Well, obviously, <laughs> there's quite a lot going on in the 1920s, 1930s, and 1940s. Uh, so, and also, I'm not sure we have had anybody in the second half of the 20th century who quite matches the likes of Bertrand Russell and Karl Wittgenstein. There have been some great philosophers, of course, but these were true giants. And the world was divided in a way that, obviously it's divided in different ways now, but when you're faced with the kind of evil of Nazism and the rise of fascism, that's a very dramatic moment in history. So uh, clearly for somebody writing about that period, there's a lot of material. But... You know, I'm, I'm, at the moment, I'm, I'm writing a biography of my old supervisor, Derek Parfitt, who only died in 2017. So it's a very contemporary book. And um, I'm hoping it nonetheless, it will have, a, it will be above a threshold of excitement. So um, yeah, I'm not exclusively devoted to that period. But, but I'm, I'm very interested in that period of history.
0: On the back of the book, I'm going to quote one of the endorsements from uh, Cheryl Misak, author of Frank Ramsey, a name that comes up in the book, A Sheer Excess of Powers. She writes, This book beautifully combines the ideas, politics, history, and personal side of one of the most important movements in philosophy. It will transform the way the Vienna Circle is viewed much for the better. It is also a cracking good read. I couldn't agree more. I really enjoyed reading this book, David. Um, You can actually purchase copies of it from Daunt Books, located right next door to Paradise. And I would just like to say a huge, huge thank you to Paradise, to uh, the manager, Wasel Ali, for having us here today. There he is. To the wonderful waiting staff who are about to serve you fantastic food, legendary menu of Paradise. And to all of you, really, for coming here today. Thank you very much as well to the author, David Edmonds. Thank you.
1: Enjoy. Enjoy. The Edmunds Birani is enough for three people, so don't be... <laughs> be, be careful.